Hi, I'm Max, and you're listening to the Alleviating Poverty Through Entrepreneurship podcast. This week, I want to shift gears a little and talk about one of the most exciting programs that we do here at APTE to promote social businesses. Every year as part of the summit, we hold a business competition where young entrepreneurs who are looking to get their businesses off the ground can pitch their ideas to a panel of experts. The winners of this competition will receive a grant provided by our local partners, and everyone who participates will get valuable experience in pitching, opportunities to network, and advice from local business leaders and business school faculty from OSU. With the deadline for this year's competition approaching at the end of the month, I thought it would be interesting to talk to some of last year's winners and see where they're at now. First off is Wes Meyer of nonprofit group EOS International. EOS stands for Emerging Opportunities for Sustainability, and their goal is to provide low-cost, appropriate technologies to people in developing areas. For Wes, the idea of EOS came together after he completed his engineering degree and had a chance to go to Nicaragua and serve with the Peace Corps. My graduating senior year of, of undergrad, um, a group of friends and I came up with the notion we were working with projects. One of our senior design projects was appropriate technology design. And so that kind of sparked the interest for us to make a, make a difference, to do something different with our engineering degree. And so the, the senior year, all four of us got together and kind of started this nonprofit really with a, an open-ended you know, name and just kind of like we want to do something with technology. Um, and then, and at the same time, I was interested in, in trying you know, to do this whole Peace Corps thing. And I was given the opportunity to go to Nicaragua for two years and had the structure of a really early, early, you know, small nonprofits to do something with technology. And so um, the Peace Corps, you know, I, I gained all the in-country resources, learned a ton about international development by living it myself, and then also had the resources, you know, some of them based back home with engineers and other resources and there to help, uh, help me come up with uh, technology solutions to help people um, specifically in Nicaragua. The technologies that EOS provides may not seem groundbreaking, but they're elegantly designed, low cost, easy to service, and most importantly, they've proven to be effective. Wes runs through them. Um, so the first technology that we really focused on was drip irrigation. Um, you know, drip irrigation has been around for a really long time in the world, and uh, it really wasn't, it was definitely not prevalent in Nicaragua. And so farmers were using traditional practices as flooding. Um, they'd have like a large pump and they would pump water from a river and just flood a whole plot, you know, losing a ton of water to evaporation and not, you know, you had to guide the water to the actual plant. Um, but by using uh, drip irrigation, you can, you know, direct the water directly to the root of the vegetable. And so kind of redesigned a system using local materials to provide a really low-cost drip irrigation system that anybody can purchase. Uh, the second one is a biogas digester. Again, using 100% local materials, use plastic out of a, a greenhouse, for greenhouse plastic, again, locally available, and um, PVC tubes and pipes and connectors. Um, all put together to capture cow manure methane. So after the cow manure um, breaks down, decomposes, it produces methane, and we capture that in a big plastic bag and then pipe it into a kitchen. And now uh, where farmers are using firewood, you know, women would, would cook for um, five, four to six hours a day over, you know, open, you know, just think of a campfire, smoke on their face. Um, and especially during the rainy season, the wood is all wet. Um, they, it'd be even extra smoky. Now they can just add a half a bucket of cow manure into this biogas digester and they can have up to five hours of cooking gas a day. Um, another technology is a water coordinator. Um, this, again, was designed from a partner organization um, that we've, uh, we've implemented for the organization. And it's really a really simple design using PVC and a simple chlorine tablet that's, again, locally available. 
um, and it provides chlorinated water for a whole community. A final technology that, again, has been around for a long time is a solar panel. Um, what we've really focused on is providing a really low, the lowest cost as possible, although they are still very expensive. Um, a really small 35-watt solar panel comes with four small light bulbs, a battery, and a controller. So somebody, basically a whole kit installed, so somebody can just purchase this and install the whole thing throughout their house, and they have light. Um, whereas, you know, they wouldn't have before, or else they're, you know, burning kerosene or sometimes even just lighting a log. These technologies can not only have a huge effect on people's quality of life, but can also help them start their own businesses and bring them out of poverty. Well, I think, um, you know, poverty has multiple pillars and how to get people out of poverty. And there's been a lot of studies and a lot of research, um, you know, improving health can help people, you know, just the water coordinated or coordinated water can now allow students to go to school, um, whereas they'd be at home sick. Um, same thing with smoke. I mean, women cooking over fire um, is obviously very hazardous to their health and even slows them down. Even, you know, their eyes, they get literally blurry when they're cooking over that. And um, one, one other really big thing I think that's really important with the technology is that a lot of them actually generate income. So it allows people to generate income and um, the biogas digester. People uh, in some areas have to pay for firewood because they don't have the ground to grow the trees. Uh, and so they'd have to pay for firewood. And the cost alone for the, the biogas digester and the amount that they're paying for the firewood, um, some of our preliminary studies show between eight and nine months, somebody can pay for a biogas digester, pay for the amount, um, the cost that it, the digester costs and the amount that they're um, picking and, and buying. And so within eight to nine months, they can pay for the biogas digester. And then the life of the biogas is well beyond five years. And so there is a you know good opportunity for them to save some money, um, and then and the technology I actually forgot to mention it was a really important technology of ours is a fuel efficient barrel oven. So using again all local resources using a metal barrel, um, people are are now able to bake, um, and the efficiency of this barrel oven versus a traditional method, which is used a traditional method is used throughout Nicaragua, it's about ninety percent more efficient. And so now um, women, and actually it's much more of a joy to use. Um, it's one of our design criteria that the technology has to be a joy to use. Well, people really enjoy using this um, barrel oven to the point where now people are starting up bakeries and starting businesses. And we have multiple opportunities where women um, have you know, purchased one oven and started baking. And they've grown to the point where they've hired a couple of their family members. Now they have three or four people working and baking on a daily basis to now where they came back to us and asked for a second oven to build right beside it because they had to double the capacity. And now um, one specific example, Jonia Chapita, she now has 12 employees. She's baking on a daily basis and she's gone to the point where she actually um, broke down and got rid of both of our ovens and bought a commercial sized oven. Wes likes to use the phrase appropriate technology to describe what EOS provides, and I wanted to know exactly what that meant. Appropriate technology can be defined as technology that's appropriate for its audience. Um, and so, you know, just a quick example, I use this when I speak with university groups. Um, you know, a tractor is very appropriate for farmers in the U.S. But if you were to take a tractor and put it in Nicaragua, it'd be very inappropriate because, yes, it may work for first three months and then people may not even have enough money to pay for the gas. Um, but if they can, then, you know, you get a flat tire. How do they fix a flat tire? they got to change the oil. They have a belt that goes bad. It's just the, the infrastructure is not there yet for the tractor. Whereas, take the opposite example of, of a pair of oxen. You bring a pair of oxen to the U.S., and farmers are going to laugh because there's no way they can, you know, plant and harvest 1,000 acres with a pair of oxen. But in Nicaragua, farmers have grass that, that they can feed the oxen. They can maintain it. Um, it's obviously a lot slower output 
from the oxen, but that's what's appropriate, is that it is locally available, and people do know how to make the um, the harness and the yoke for the oxen to tie the plow to, and the plow is, you know, meant to attach to oxen. So our technologies are all designed to be very appropriate for Nicaragua based on the materials that they have, based on the, the prices and the costs that they can pay, and um, and obviously the need that they have. And those needs are very different from, you know, Nicaragua than they are here in the U.S. One problem that a lot of NGOs encounter abroad is that local communities have no way of servicing their technologies once they leave. EOS tries to avert this through local training. So what we do is we set up a, we have a very rigorous training schedule where we go into the community and usually sometimes we're going in multiple times before the technology is even installed and we're training people on the importance of the technology um, and, and, and the impact that it can have and then going in and installing the technology and again training them, providing with training materials, manuals, brochures, um, with a lot of pictures so people that may not be able to read can actually understand it by just the pictures. And then they're actually building the technology with us. Um, the technologies usually aren't off the shelf. We can do some prep work in our in our office, in our warehouse to, to assemble it. But a lot of the installation is done, you know, in in the house. So, for example, the oven really, you know, it uses a lot of bricks. And so the people are there. We make sure that they build it with us. And then as we're building it, we're going through different things, explaining how it works, and then troubleshooting and saying, like, in our experience, we've seen that this tends um, this to be the first thing that would break if it were to break, and all you need to replace it is with this material. And then we provide that local infrastructure that they can call that local person that installed it. Um, we're very close. And we also have a really unique situation where when we work with projects, um, in a community we'd install three or four of them, we would actually train one specific person, a community leader, to go and install, for example, we'd install one at his house, and then we go to the next neighbors and we install one for the neighbor. We make sure and bring along that community leader. So now that community leader gets to build two of them and then three of them. So we kind of um, give that experience to that community leader. So then we leave um, that community leader as their point person. So then they can go to that community leader instead of coming to us um, to, to ask the questions for troubleshooting. Finding support and advice was critical for an ambitious project like EOS. And Wes says APTE has been a valuable source of passionate people. I have attended the APT conferences for the last, I want to say, two years. Mm -hmm. And um, so I've been attending them and I've been in love with going there and just the inspiration that it provides and, you know, being around like-minded individuals and, you know, entrepreneurs and, you know, um, people for social cause. Like it's like a, it's, it's my passion when I'm obviously in right now. And, you know, seeing that all together in one conference has been, it was, it's pretty inspirational. As a business competition finalist, West was able to get some great advice from our industry partners. So Global Brigades, um, they were one of the sponsors for, for this. I had some great conversations. They're a very established organization that's doing some really neat things throughout the world. So I had some great conversations with a couple of their founders and learning about how they, you know, just asking questions about growth and, you know, management of funds. And so that was a really big help. Um, and then also I feel that the, the business comp gave or, you know, kind of forced us into really providing a, a sound presentation and um, just explaining. Sometimes, you know, we're still learning what we're doing and we don't, you know, necessarily have a clear, uh, you know, presentation created depending on the audience. And this is just a good opportunity for us to uh, create a solid presentation to, to describe exactly what EOS is doing and help put it into words that makes sense for, for everybody, for the audience. Wes says that the grant that EOS ended up winning has gone a very, very long way. So the $5,000 that we, we were able to hire another um, uh, staff member, a Nicaraguan staff member, to focus on the water coordinator project. And we ended up um, receiving a large project to install 92 water coordinators throughout north or western and, northwestern and northeastern parts of Nicaragua. 
um, in conjunction with a couple other local NGOs. And so with that project alone, we were able to um, install these 92 water coordinators and then end up helping over 35,000 Nicaraguans with clean water. So it was a really huge impact that, that this um, you know, money went towards to make a difference. And now you know, 35,000 Nicaraguans have access to clean water. Um, you know, on a daily basis. And so it's neat that, you know, we, uh, this money did help um, go to help a lot of people. And that was very impactful. Next, I talked to Amina Mia of ethical fashion company Project Sina. Project Sina employs women in Karachi, Pakistan, and also provides them with literacy training and a community center. Like Wes, Amina had big plans straight out of college. It was something that was kind of um, organic, I guess you could say. I mean, I studied community development in college and I graduated in 2011, realized there were no jobs, <laughs> had a vision in mind of what I wanted to do, um, having traveled in India quite a bit and worked with underprivileged communities there and educational NGOs. Um, and so I saw kind of this gap um, whereby in India and South Asia in general, um, so like handicraft and embroidery and garment construction. It's very much a part of the culture and all, all women there, almost all women, <laughs> I can say that factually, have this skill where they know how to do hand embroidery and they have access to the raw materials and so on and so forth just because it's part of the culture. And so, you know, traditionally we look at, you know, South Asian or, you know, or India, Pakistan as, you know, developing economies and especially women from underprivileged communities there as not having skills um, when really they do. And so my partner, my, um, the co-founder of Project Sina Anam, um, she studied fashion at FITM and actually had um, some family in Karachi. And so after graduating, both her and I just started got, you know, got to talking, you know, about future plans and visions and so on and so forth. And so we kind of got together and brainstormed and just, you know, pooled our resources really um, and kind of dreamt up Project Sina <laughs> um, just because we knew the uh, particular community there that her aunt is from where um, there's lots of illegal subcontracting, meaning that um, large boutiques and um, retailers, essentially, they source their embroidery work from those slums. So the women there will get paid maybe two USD for like three days of work. And this is kind of work that's like off the books. Like people don't, you know, that's not part of, you know, what is reported, you know, in supply chain. These costs are just buried. And so um, we thought, you know, if they do that work on some T-shirts that we design and cut out all the middlemen and we sell these shirts directly and put really like a story behind the shirts and actually give them the profit that they deserve and we represent them, then this could be something really cool. Um, and so that's really how we got started. Project Sina hopes to fill a younger niche that other ethical fashion brands may not. A lot of times the mismatch is that um, sometimes they're, it's a, a lot of times overpriced or that's what pe people our age who are really passionate about this stuff and interested in supporting these causes um, 
yeah, a lot of times, even though they want to, they see it as too expensive, just like shopping organic or, you know, doing the thing that's socially right just somehow is more expensive. And so we thought that, you know, if we priced it at the right price point, and of course, just, you know, our target market, again, is young, hip, you know, college kids you know, or people in their, um, you know, early to late 20s. And we all wear T-shirts, <laughs> you know. And it was just something also, you know, aside from putting target market and, you know, all that strategy aside, it's just something cool. <laughs> like you don't see that kind of aesthetic that much in design. Um, you see graphic, you know, screen printed shirts, but you don't really see embroidered shirts and so we thought it would be something different and something cool. Um, and so we, we thought that we would start with that, you know, similar to maybe how a Tom's just started with shoes and now they make a lot of things. Style-wise, Project Sina tries to fuse traditional Pakistani designs with Western silhouettes. You know, I grew up in a South Asian household and where, you know, I would wear traditional Pakistani clothes a lot. And, you know, same with Anam. And so we would see, we would have these really gorgeous traditional clothes that were like hand embroidered. It was something we've been exposed to our whole lives. And so we always wondered, I mean, why we couldn't find that kind of detail on um, Western style apparel, um, you know, when we thought, you know, maybe this could be like a cool fusion. And it's something that's, you know, in terms of like fashion design and, um, Eastern detail meeting Western silhouettes. That's definitely happening more and more in the fashion world. Um, but it's, again, it's still something that's emerging. So, um, yeah, it, it has a lot to do with our background. Although Project Sina pays a fair wage, their ultimate goal isn't just to provide women with work, but to empower them to achieve their own goals. The thing with Project Sina is that, I mean, as much as we are really proud of the fact that we're providing these women with employment, um, you know, we realize that just being someone's employer and giving them a wage and having them be fully dependent on us for their sustenance isn't enough. You know, the point, and, you know, and again, I studied development, and so my understanding of community development um, would be something more sustainable. For Project Sina, this means building professional skills. You know, some of the women... Um, you know, they did hand embroidery professionally, like I had mentioned before, you know, for retailers, you know, via illegal subcontracting. And then some women had been exposed to it, but, you know, maybe weren't as good or they their skill wasn't as developed as the other women. So, um, you know, bringing everybody to that level where they're all really good at this skill and even if we were to leave you know, that community, they were, they would still be able to have that skill and perhaps maybe start their own business. Um, because, you know, and we definitely in our operations, for example, they come to our women's center three days a week and half of that time, um, they are doing literacy development programming. And the other half of the time we're doing the skills training, um, and embroidering the t-shirts. So, um, you know, and through the that operation, you know, it's like they're getting a good understanding of, okay, like this this is how operations work. This is how QA works. Um, these are some, you know, different design ideas as well, you know, some fresh aesthetics that, you know, maybe if we made them ourselves, we could sell them. Um, 
on our own. And and also, again, you know, education, you know, that's a definition of sustainability in my book. So, um, you know, they've gone, they first came to the center, or when they first started with projects, you know, a lot of these women didn't know how to hold a pencil in their hand. And now they're fully literate in their native tongue, or reading and writing at least, and they're also now learning English, which in Pakistan is huge because, you know, it's a very polarized country in terms of class, and um, knowing English and being able to speak it and read it and write it, that's, um, that's a, definitely a tool for upward mobility. But Project Sina is only a year old, and Amna said it's been difficult to get her business off the ground. You know, that's the hard part is carrying on the vision, you know, and, you know, the vision, okay, you started it. So how do you scale from your pilot project to, you know, thriving, self-sustainable social enterprise? That's why she was drawn to the APTE business competition when she heard about it. I actually did a fellowship in social enterprise in Mumbai called the IDEX Fellowship. And so um, that exposed me to, you know, of course, a network of people that were really enthusiastic about all things social enterprise and social business. And so she told me about it and she said, you know, you'd be a good fit for this. Um, so I entered and then, yeah, here I am. Amina said that the business competition gave her a lot of experience with selling her vision to other people. I would say probably on the pitching end of things, um, in terms of how I'm framing Project Sina, when I approach people, um, and you know, you never know who, when you start a conversation with someone, you never know who's going to walk through the door. And you know, when people, you get to talking with someone, they're like, so tell me, who are you? What are you about? Um, you know, so coming up really with, you know, our value proposition, for example, you know, because being, you know, how Anam and I are, we're so deeply attached to what we're doing on the ground in terms of the community development aspect, but, um, and how we've impacted the lives of these women, you know, um, and so I just tend to focus on the individual stories, um, but, for example, if an investor were to walk through the door, they would want to hear about how profitable this model could be, <laughs> you know, as opposed to um, how Farah is now the first literate female in her family. So um, kind of, you know, how figuring out how to pitch, you know, both that passion behind this project, but also the profitability that was a big learning um, or a big takeaway for us. And also just, you know, the self-confidence that we gained being able to pitch up on a stage in front of, you know, really seasoned professors and entrepreneurs and students. Um, you know, it was definitely an exercise and, you know, confidence for us. Like, okay, we actually, this isn't just, you know, a little like passion project. Like we have the ability to make this really big. Amina hopes that Project CNN will eventually become something bigger than any work she's done. But in terms of you know, the operation that we've set up, we, we've realized now that we, we were really just a spark for something that's kind of turned into this like grassroots, like community development project. Like the teachers 
that we've recruited and the program manager that oversees this and hosts the programming in her home. Like this is something that's become like a part of her life and integral to her life. And she doesn't ever imagine like walking away from it. It's something that she loves doing now. And same with the women, like they really like built a community with each other. And, you know, even without any kind of formal mandate, like on, um, for example, like holidays, like Eid, um, you know, they'll get together and they'll put on their best outfits and they'll go to the Women's Center and hang out and like dance and party. <laughs> These are just a couple stories of people who have gone through APTE's business competition. I'll leave you today with a few words of encouragement from Wes for people who are considering applying. I would say the business competition um, is a great opportunity to, one, present kind of what you're working on. Uh, it's also a great way to network with some of the other competitors. Um, we became good friends with some of them and actually learned a lot of really neat ideas of what they're doing. Um, and finally, uh, with Global Brigades, who was the, the sponsor, their founders were available and I was able to speak with them about, um, you know, they were a couple more years advanced than us. And so learning some of the questions that are asking some of the questions that we had about growth and managing funds that they've, you know, they've been working with for multiple years before us. So um, I think, you know, the networking is one of the biggest things and then getting, forcing yourself to create a presentation to present to a large group is, is always daunting, but, um, you know, it really helps you set your course. You can find out more about the business competition and about our organization in general at aptesummit.org. The deadline for applications is January 30th. Until next time, I'm Max Mauerman, and we are alleviating poverty through entrepreneurship. Thank you.